You know, I was thinking about how much missions has changed just in my lifetime. Modern missions as we know it today really goes back a couple hundred years, maybe about 250 years as we think about how we do missions and how it's organized today at least. But of course the idea of missions is, uh, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, but I know that in my lifetime I've, we've definitely seen a change in in missions and how missions is done, and primarily uh, that's because of technology that we have today. Um, I am old enough to remember that when, when slideshows were actually slideshows, and some of you younger folks don't know what I'm talking about, uh, a slideshow is called a slideshow because you used to have these little uh, images that you would slide into a projector and it would be projected on the screen. And, uh, and when, I was, um, when I was a kid growing up in elementary school especially, uh, that's the way all the missionary presentations were. And you were always watching very carefully throughout the presentations for the one slide that was in upside down. Um, and the, absolutely the worst thing that could happy, happen for a missionary is when they were setting up their slide projector right before the service is they dropped the ring and all the slides went scattering everywhere. You know, they couldn't pull out their iPhone and pull up a backup. They had to sit there and resort them all. And that was, that was uh, my introduction to missions as a child. I grew up in a church that had a very strong missions program, and what a blessing that was. And I heard all the missions stories coming through uh, both Christian school and children's church and Sunday school and everything. And, and, uh, and fast forward to today, and technology has really changed so much of, of how, how we do missions. Of course, online communication makes it much easier uh, for missionaries to stay connected. Um, but it also presents its own challenges as well. And we've come a long way since the days of, say, Adoniram Judson riding on a boat for months to get to Burma. And, and uh, all of those great missionary pioneers of the past. We've come a long way. But really, missions at its core has not changed. Missions as the uh, responsibility of the New Testament church is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And so while our techniques and technology may have grown, may have changed, and we may have uh, access to jets and, and we can use Zoom and different things like that to uh, uh, communicate with people, it really is the same that we've the same goal that we've had from the time that Jesus first commanded his disciples to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Missions is simply getting the gospel to all the world. That's what missions is. Now, some people have some stereotypes in mind about what missionaries are. Even today, um, you know, they think they hear the word missionary and they think, well, that's somebody who goes to a third world country and sits in a grass hut and eats bugs. Um, well, some of them do, yes, uh, but not all of them. In fact, probably nowadays, that's a, a great minority of them. Um, and, and there are various different uh, things you might think of. You might think of a missionary. The first thing you might come to your mind is somebody who simply travels from church to church showing videos. Uh, well, yes, they do that a lot as well, especially early in the process as they go on deputation. But a missionary is not just someone who goes to a weird place. Uh, and eats weird things. A missionary is someone who has answered God's call on their life to go to a specific location to share the gospel with people. Missions is simply taking the gospel around the world. 
And a missionary is simply a person who goes somewhere to tell someone about the gospel. Now there is a sense in which every believer is a missionary. And then there are certain believers that God calls to leave their place of uh, of comfort and go to a foreign country and, and preach the gospel there. But whether we're talking about being a missionary right here in our own backyard or whether we're talking about being a missionary in North Africa, it is very important that we have a biblical philosophy of missions. With all of the changes that we have seen in the way missions has been done, unfortunately, sometimes there's been a shift in the philosophy behind it. Why we are doing what we're doing. And so it is very important that as we focus today and for the weeks ahead on the idea of world evangelization, on missions in particular, that we be reminded of the biblical philosophy, the biblical reason why and how we are to do missions. And this morning, I want to go to a verse of Scripture that is very familiar to all of us. If you've been in church any length of time, if you've ever been to a missions conference, you have probably heard this verse. You've probably heard a sermon on this verse or a Sunday school lesson. That very first Sunday in May of 2016 that our family was here, I actually used this verse as my text verse in the Sunday school hour as I taught on the topic of what is missions. And today we're going to look at this verse again. Not the same message, by the way. That's the great thing about the Bible. You can come back to the same passage, the same verse over and over again, and you get different things out of it every time. But today we're going to be looking at this verse of Scripture, very familiar, and, and considering this thought, the mission of the church. The mission of the church. Acts 1 and verse number 8 says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we take time to look into your word, we do not want to simply go through the motions or fill a slot in our order of service. We truly want to learn to learn what your plan is and what our part is in that plan of reaching the world with the gospel. It is our duty as believers and as a church body to be obeying your commands, including the command to preach the gospel to every creature. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, challenge us, convict us, that we might have that missionary mindset, even as our Savior did, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this verse again this morning, I want to I keep our thoughts just very simple today and look at some very important truths about the biblical philosophy of missions and the mission of the church. Number one, would you notice with me the people of missions? The people of missions. In Acts chapter 1, we have this scene of Jesus, and he's having a conversation with his disciples. These, these are the remaining 11 disciples. Prior to this, Judas has gone out and committed suicide. And so 
It's the 11 disciples that are left. And the Bible says that, that they had uh, gathered together and uh, Jesus was talking to them. And on this particular occasion, Jesus is having his last conversation. The very last words that he would speak to his disciples before ascending back up to heaven. And look at verse number 7. It says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. And then he says in verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. And then verse number 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received out of their sight. So these are the very last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. But what I want us to begin with this morning is understanding that it was indeed his disciples to whom Jesus was speaking. So the people of missions are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words were spoken not just to the 11 that were there that day, but to every person who after them would follow Christ by faith. Jesus wants His people who are saved to carry the message of salvation to those who are lost. For many of us, this is a simple idea that we have had drilled into us from the time that we were young. If you've been in church for any number of years, you have heard messages on the Great Commission. But the Great Commission was given by the Lord Jesus Christ to His disciples as a very last command before he went to heaven. We call it the Great Commission because Jesus has commissioned us, has commanded us, given us this great task of preaching the gospel to all the world. Mark 16, 15, he said there, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. John 20 and verse 21, Jesus said, As the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 28, where we see Matthew's recording of the Great Commission. What's interesting is we look at the different gospel accounts and we put together the conversations, we realize that it actually was not just one instance where Jesus gave the Great Commission. It happened multiple times. Multiple times in those last few days or hours that Jesus was with His disciples He gave them essentially the same command. And in Matthew chapter 28, we read there where Jesus told His disciples. Excuse me, just a second. Matthew chapter 28, look at verse number 19. He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This was Jesus' command, but it was not a generic command to all of humanity. It was a specific command to His disciples. If you are saved, then it is a command for you. You are included in that number of the people of missions. It's so important for us to emphasize this because oftentimes when we think of missions and missionaries, we think of the equivalent of spiritual superheroes. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I believe we ought to have spiritual people as our heroes. But what I mean is that many people think that being a missionary means that you have unlocked some special level of spiritual power and you have risen to the ranks of a very few select chosen Christians to be able to be called a missionary. And when we think in those terms, we do not have a biblical philosophy of missions. Because the biblical philosophy of missions starts with realizing that every single Christian is to be a missionary. Every single Christian is supposed to be taking part in the process of getting the gospel to the world. Now it becomes a little bit blurry in our thinking because sometimes we talk about foreign missionaries or maybe uh, we talk about people who are going to be missionaries across the country or things like that. And so we sometimes then we separate missionaries from normal Christians. I'll let you in on a secret. Missionaries are normal Christians. They have normal problems. They have normal struggles. They have normal victories and normal blessings. They're normal Christians. And every Christian ought to be a normal missionary. That should be just what we do, a part of who we are. I think we've lost that in our day and age. I think there has been something that has slipped through the cracks in our generation. Whereas before, there used to be a lot of emphasis on personal evangelization, about winning the lost, about soul winning, about about, uh, reaching the world. I think that's slipped a little bit. We need to be reminded this morning that every one of us who knows Christ as our Savior is to be a missionary. Notice in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, twice Jesus said to His disciples, Ye shall. Ye shall. This was a personal command. Personal instruction that Jesus gave to them. He didn't say, those people down in Jerusalem... He didn't say the religious leaders, the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees. He looked at his followers and he said, You, ye shall be witnesses unto me. The Great Commission was not given to the world at large. It was given to the saints in particular. I told you we were going to keep it simple. Let's look number two at the power for missions. The power for missions. Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now to understand what Jesus is saying there, you have to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the context of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers as He does today. His ministry uh, was a little bit different. The Holy Spirit still ministered, and there was still a lot of similarities but the Holy Spirit as an indwelling permanent presence in the believer was something, is something unique to New Test, the New Testament era. At this point, Jesus had promised His disciples that when He left, He would send another comforter that would abide with them. And that comforter was indeed the Holy Spirit, but He had not yet come. That would come on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. At this point, they had not yet received the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so Jesus speaks of it in a future tense. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And so for them, this was a future promise. But for those of us who are saved today, it is a present reality. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us. 
And what's important to note in connection to missions and a biblical philosophy of missions is that the power to accomplish the mission comes not through our own selves, but comes through the Holy Spirit. That means missions is to be done in the power of God. We cannot accomplish spiritual work in the strength of the flesh. And yet it is amazing how often ministry, quote-unquote, is done in the power of the flesh. And it is done in reliance upon the schemes of man and the intelligence of man and the power of man. And ministry that is done that way might be successful and, uh, to, to look at. And from the outside, it might seem exciting and it might seem like it's thrilling and it might seem that uh, it's, it's really the way to go. But the truth is that ministry that is done in the power of the flesh is doomed to fail. God's work must be done in God's power. And it is the Holy Ghost who empowers us to do the work of the Lord. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. See, the thing about missions, if you're going to do it correctly, it's pretty intimidating, actually. I mean, you think about the responsibility uh, to share the gospel with, with every creature. I mean, that's a big task. Personally, on the personal level, as you go to share the gospel with other people, that can be a very scary experience. And there's a lot of fear that we are tempted to give into that would prevent us from fulfilling our responsibility. But God has given us power to be able to fulfill that commission that He's given us in the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.7 God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What does this look like in the context of missions? Well, I think of the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 4. It's the story of Moses at the burning bush. You remember that story as Moses sees a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed, and he approaches, and God speaks to him through the burning bush. And God tells Moses that Moses is to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And what does Moses do? When God gives him that command... He immediately says, okay, let's go, and takes off, right? No, that's not what he does. What he does is he does what I would have probably done, and what you might have done is he began to give God a whole lot of good reasons why he can't do it, a.k.a. excuses. I can't do this. I'm not eloquent. I'm, uh, I, 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 and, and, and back and forth, there was, there was this, this back and forth between Moses and God. Moses essentially saying, I can't do it. And I, in a sense, he was right. Because Moses was thinking of it in terms of his own ability. And when you think about God's will for your life in terms of your own ability, the fact is, you can't do it. On your own, you cannot do God's work. On your own, you cannot do God's will. You can only accomplish those things with God's power. And so as Moses is giving God all these excuses of why he can't do it, God says to him in Exodus 4 and verse number 12, Now therefore go, I will be with thy mouth, and I will teach thee what thou shalt say. And God would go on to do other things by giving him his brother Aaron to be a, a helper to him, to make sure that Moses had everything he needed to accomplish the task that God had given him to do. And it's the same way with us today. We haven't been called to Egypt to command Pharaoh to deliver God's people and to let them go. But we have been called by God to reach the world with the gospel. 
And we might think, I, we can't do that. That's impossible. And the fact is, yes, in our own strength it is. But God has promised to empower us and enable us as we rely on Him. He doesn't send us out alone to do it in our own strength. Even as we read there in Matthew 28, He said, Lo, I am with you always. And it's the eternal abiding presence of God with us that gives us the ability to accomplish this task. In fact, relying on God for the power to reach the world is so important that Jesus actually told His disciples to wait until the Holy Spirit came before they went out to be a witness. Back in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 4, He told them to go back to Jerusalem and abide there and wait until the Holy Spirit came. And it was not until the Holy Spirit was given that they then went out and they began to preach the gospel. And on that day, the day of Pentecost, thousands of people were saved. As Peter stood up, Peter, you know, Peter who was always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter, the guy who had denied Christ three times. Peter, the guy who said, I go a fishing. That guy. He stood up and in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaimed a simple gospel message and thousands of people were saved. And the result was that people stood back and were wondered and they were amazed at what God did. You see, when we rely on God for the power of missions, He gets all the glory for what is done. That's why Paul said that he did not come preaching the gospel with enticing words of man's wisdom because he didn't want people's faith to stand in the wisdom of men. He wanted people to have faith in the power of God. Notice number three from our text verse, the process of missions. We've seen the people and the power. What's the process? Well, Jesus used a very simple word to communicate how missions is to be done. He said, ye shall be witnesses witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness simply tells what they've seen. They tell what they know. It's a very simple idea. You know, God did not call all of His disciples to become Bible scholars as we think of it today. He did not call of his, all of His disciples to write biblical commentaries. He did not call all of His disciples to go teach in a seminary somewhere. But you know what He did call all of His disciples to do? Be a witness. Be a witness. Tell what you know and tell what you've seen. Now in order for this to happen, there's, some prelim there's something that's preliminary. To be a witness, you have to be a witness. What do I mean by that? Well, let me put it this way. The noun has to come before the verb. So you have to see something and know something before you can share it. And when it comes to the being a witness for Christ, the first step is knowing for sure that you are saved. Having assurance of your own salvation so that you can say with all certainty, I know that Jesus saved me. Let me share with you how He did it. That's what being a witness begins with. A witness must be sure of what they have seen and what they know, so that they say it with confidence. And that's why assurance of our salvation is so important. Let's just say, for example, that you were on jury duty, and uh, somebody was being uh, prosecuted for robbing a bank. You're on the jury. And so the prosecution calls a witness up, 
And uh, this witness was an employee at the bank and was there at the time of the robbery. And uh, the prosecution asks a few questions, and then they turn it over to the defense. And the defense comes up to this witness. Now, the job of the defense is to get the accused person off the hook, right? To create doubt. And so they come, and they begin to question this alleged witness. And they say to this alleged witness, were you there at the time of the robbery? And the witness says, yes, I was there. Okay. Did you see the robbery take place? Well, I, I saw part of it because I was in the back room. But I, I, I saw some commotion, some things going on. Okay, so did you see the person who was robbing the bank? Well, I, I saw them. Yes, I saw them. They were, they were kind of had their back turned to me and they were walking away. But I, I saw them. So, Mr. Witness, can you say for all certainty that the person sitting over there at the defense table was without a shadow of a doubt the person that you saw rob the bank. And the witness pauses for a moment and says, well, I, I think it was him. But are you sure, the defense attorney says, can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was the man? Well, I, I'm, I'm 99% sure. Now you're on the jury. How are you going to react to that kind of a witness? Now that there has, there has been an opportunity for somebody to say definitively that was the person, and yet they get up and they say, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, as a member of the jury, you're supposed to only convict someone unless they are, if they are found guilty beyond reasonable doubt. A witness must be sure in order to be an effective witness. And as a Christian, you must be sure of your own salvation in order to be an effective witness. But if you are sure of your own salvation, the hard part's done. By the way, that's a part that's done by Christ when you place your faith in Him. Now all you have to do is just tell people what you've seen and what you know. There is a process and growth that should take place as you learn more and more, but the idea of being a witness is actually very simple. We see great examples of this in Scripture. I love the story in John chapter 9 of the blind man that Jesus healed. Caused quite a kerfuffle there. And he was called before the religious leaders and he was questioned about being healed. Who healed you? A man named Jesus. He spit and made mud and told me to wash it out and that's how I was healed. And they call the guy's parents in. Is this your son? Yes, that's our son. Was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. Well, how does he see now? I don't know. He's of age. Ask him. So they turn back to the guy. Give God the praise. This man's a sinner. We know that he's a sinner. How did he heal you? I love what this man said. In John chapter 9, in verse 25, the blind man who'd been healed, he answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. You know what he was doing? He's being a witness. He didn't understand all of the theological implications of the questions that they were asking him and what this was all about. But he knew one thing. That he used to be blind, but he met Jesus and now he could see. And Listen, don't let fear stop you from sharing what you know. Somebody might ask you a theological question that you don't know the answer to. You know how you respond to that? You say, I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. I know that I'm a sinner, but I placed, in my, placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He saved me from my sins. 
And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, I have eternal home in heaven. I may not know a lot, but I know that. That's being a witness. It's the attitude of Peter in Acts chapter 4. He said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We've seen it, we've heard it, we've got to share it. I think of Paul before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. What did he do? He simply shared his personal salvation testimony. That's being a witness. You know, there are a lot of buzzwords that sometimes creep into missions programs and different things over the years. Some of them come in and out of fashion. And, you know, I'm all for reevaluating our approaches and our means of achieving the goal here. But I think we have to be very careful that we don't stray from a biblical pattern of simply being a witness. Being a witness. Just telling people the truth of the gospel. That's the process of missions. It's believers personally sharing the message of the gospel with the lost. That's it. Now, we have a lot of tools that we can use. There are approaches that we can use uh, to, to maybe help facilitate that. There are lots of ways we can accomplish it. But every program, every plan must support that simple process of one believer sharing the gospel with a lost person. That's missions. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, of proclamation of the gospel. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's how it works. We can get fancy. We can use technology. I'm all for that kind of stuff. But it boils down to a simple process of believers sharing the gospel and being a witness to the lost. And notice finally, the place of missions. The place of missions. In Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, Jesus said, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Very quickly, let's break this down. There are four regions that Jesus specifically mentioned here that his followers were to be witnesses. The first was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city where they were at that time right outside of, but that's where they were going to be going back to. That was their residence at that particular point. It was where they were. Jesus said, be a witness starting where you are. You know, a lot of times we think of missions, we think over there. We have maps up in our church building and we have our missions wall that talks about the different locations that our missionaries are at. And, and it reminds us that there are people everywhere. But if we're not careful, we forget that everywhere includes here. Start where you are. I love how practical Jesus was there. He didn't say to be a missionary, you've got to go thousands of miles away. No, start where you are. And then he said in all Judea. Judea was essentially what we would call the state that they lived in. All right, start where you are, begin to move out from there. And then he said Samaria. All right, Judea wouldn't have been too difficult. It's a familiar place. Language was the same. Customs were the same. We're not a whole lot of cultural boundaries to have to cross. But now you start talking about Samaria and we got a little bit of resistance. Because Samaria was different. 
It was a, they had to cross geographical and political boundaries. They had different dialects. They had different expressions. They had different food probably. But most importantly, there was a lot of prejudice there that would prohibit them from going. You look at John chapter 4 and the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. At the woman at the well, you remember. And his disciples came back and they marveled that Jesus spoke with her. There was some prejudice there. And Jesus was saying that if in order to be an effective witness for me, start where you are, move out from there, and be willing to cross cultural boundaries and overcome prejudices that you might have because they need the gospel too. We have to be careful that we do not allow prejudice to drive our missions program. It has happened in the past that churches and individual Christians have used their missions program as a band-aid for their prejudice. You wouldn't go across the street to give a tract to that person because of the color of their skin or, their, uh, or the way that they talk or, or, uh, or, or their economic status. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. But you'll put money in the offering plate to send someone else there? That's, a, that's hypocrisy. We need to be willing to go to anyone, to everyone, anywhere, everywhere, even to Samaria. And then Jesus finished by saying the uttermost part of the earth. In other words, no place is excluded. Every place is included. If there are people, then they deserve a witness. I'm longing for the day we can send our first missionary to Antarctica. You know, I don't know, maybe that day will come. But wherever there are people, we have a responsibility to get the gospel to them. That's the place of missions. But there's a little word here. That began this last phrase of the verse that's very important. Jesus said both. Both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and in the uttermost part of the earth. What does that mean? It means that we have a simultaneous responsibility to take the gospel here and there. It's both here and there, it's not one or the other. We don't get to say, well, we have a good missions program, so we don't have to worry about evangelizing Rutledge, Georgia, and the surrounding area. We don't get to do that. We don't get to say, well, we have a very strong soul winning program right here in Rutledge, Georgia, so we don't need to worry about sending missionaries across the world. We don't get to do that. It's both. We have to reach people here and there at the same time. But that also creates a challenge and raises a question. How are we going to do both? How are we going to reach people here and there when we cannot be in two places at once? It's literally impossible. I know many of us have wished we could clone ourselves and be in two places at once. Especially all of you moms out there. But we can't. So, how are we going to accomplish that? It's at this point that we realize the wisdom of Jesus' plan in giving the Great Commission not to one individual, but to all of His followers. And it is by working together that we can reach here and there with the gospel. And so how do we reach the places where people are that need the gospel? We do that through the missions program of a local church. And I want to give you three simple ways that the church is involved and the church fulfills its mission of missions. You might want to jot these down because I think the next three Sundays you're going to hear them again. But here's how the church fulfills its mission of reaching the world with the gospel. Number one, the local church supplies the missionaries. 
In other words, where do the missionaries come from? They come through the ministry of local churches like ours all over the world. As people are saved and discipled, God calls individuals to go to different places in order to reach people with the gospel. And so certain people are specifically called by God as their training begins in the local church to go to other places and reach people with the gospel. So the church supplies the missionaries. You know, we can, we can talk about why, why and are there as many missionaries being called today, but the fact of the matter is the ball is in our court as a local church to train people to do whatever God's will is for them. And some of those people, it is God's will for them to be missionaries. And it is the responsibility of the church, Ephesians 4.12, to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. How does the church involved in fulfilling its mission? Supplying the missionaries. Number two, sending the missionaries. All right, so we raise them up. We, we, we disciple them, we train them, God calls them, and now it's the church's responsibility to send those missionaries out. That's the biblical pattern. We are thankful that we have mission boards and agencies that can help the local church, but everything must revolve around the local church in this process. There is no parachurch organization that has biblical authority to send a missionary. That is the local church's authority. Acts chapter 13, we find that Paul and Barnabas were ministering in a local church in Antioch when the Holy Spirit led the local church to separate them to missions and send them out. So it is the church that sends the missionaries. And then number three, the local church fulfills its mission by supporting, supporting the missionaries. We supply them, we send them, and then we support them. We don't just send them out the door and say, all right, have fun. No, we have a responsibility, an ongoing responsibility to them to make sure that we are supporting them financially, but also spiritually. Philippians chapter 4, Paul wrote to the Philippians there and thanked them for how that they sent to meet his needs. He said, for even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit they may abound to your account. And that's the biblical pattern in the New Testament, that churches support these folks who are going out and they are preaching the gospel elsewhere. And by teaming up, by partnering up, we are able to do what Christ has commanded us to do. It's been said, and I repeat it today, that the mission of the church is missions. That's what we're to be all about. We are to be all about sending the gospel everywhere, starting here and going as far as we can. Missions has been very close to my heart for a long, long time. I originally surrendered to the ministry as a 10-year-old boy in a missions conference. I could take you to 2427 Margaret Wallace Road in Matthews, North Carolina, where sits Bible Baptist Church. I could walk you into the auditorium, up to the platform, and I can show you probably within three feet of where I knelt at a missions conference and surrendered my life to serve the Lord. And as a 10-year-old boy, I had it all figured out already, you know. So I was going to be a missionary to West Africa. And the only thing was I didn't know, I don't think I knew a single country in West Africa. I just heard West Africa, and that sounded good. So I went home, and I got the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I opened it up to West Africa, and I saw a little map there, and I looked at the countries, and I said, Togo, I've never heard of Togo before. Miss Betsy, I hadn't met you at that point. I was only 10. 
I said, I've never heard of Togo. I'm going to Togo, West Africa. And that was, that was when I surrendered to the ministry. Years later, of course, the Lord would refine my calling. And I thought he would have me be a missionary pilot in Togo, West Africa. But instead, God has given me the wonderful privilege of ministering in a local church here in the States. I know for a fact God knew what he was doing. And I've been able to be involved in missions in a lot of different ways. And by leading the local church and supplying missionaries and sending missionaries and supporting missionaries. I didn't know as a 10-year-old boy where exactly God would have me. But there was one thing that I had figured out at 10, and I hope I never forget. I knew I needed to be willing to go and do whatever God wanted me to do. The mission of the church is indeed missions. And I want to ask you this morning, what about you? Is it your mission in life to obey God's command and be a witness? To help be a part of fulfilling that great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You don't have to go across the ocean to be a missionary. Sometimes being a missionary is just about reaching across the counter or talking over the fence or calling someone on the phone. Begin right where you are and be a missionary for the glory of God.